You're listening to HSBC Talks Business. Learn how businesses like yours are leveraging a wide range of banking solutions to maximise their success and how HSBC is helping them. Listeners should note that this episode has been recorded remotely, therefore the sound quality may vary. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the very first podcast from the HSBC UK Agricultural Team. This will be the first in a series of recordings covering issues and opportunities facing the industry. My name is Martin Hansen, and I'm the UK Head of Agriculture for HSBC. For almost 50 years, HSBC has supported farmers in their planning by publishing farm profit information. While we delayed the publication of this year's data pending the outcome of Brexit negotiations, we have now updated and issued our forward planning 2021 document. The data and many insights within the forward planning was produced through close collaboration with Anderson's consultants, and I'm delighted to be joined today by four of their expert contributors who will share views on three subsectors of farming, arable, dairy and red meat, as well as to discuss how policy changes will impact on 2021 and beyond. In the interest of time, I'll ask them to introduce themselves more fully as I bring them into the conversation one by one. The economics of the UK in 2020 was, of course, dominated by the COVID pandemic, which has impacted all of our lives and devastated many industries. Some farms were initially hit hard by changing consumer habits and the loss of much of the hospitality industry. But thankfully, as a total industry, agriculture wasn't damaged as much as most others. And with the distribution of vaccines now commencing, we hope life will return closer to normality sooner rather than later, both in the UK and across the world. The UK and our trading partners will be left to deal with the aftermath and the economic consequences, which are likely to result in a difficult trading environment for some time to come. Fortunately, if I might generalise for a moment, farming tends to be somewhat counter-cyclical and does do pretty well during recessionary times. With a Brexit deal being struck, however light that might have been, and stabilised exchange rates at a level which won't particularly hinder UK agriculture, the industry is in much better shape than most. Now, in addition to the normal challenges of weather, animal, crop disease, price volatility, we also face the challenges of a removal of area payments and uncertainty regarding the detail of future policy in all of the UK nations. That means that planning isn't an exact science. But at HSBC, we firmly believe that benchmarking performance, maximising productivity and having a future focus and evolutionary plan is vital for success. We also believe that the environmental considerations of farming and the whole journey from field to fork will become increasingly important to the public to retailers and the government. In my introduction to forward planning, I reference the importance of planning, the quality management of farms and the need for forward thinking. I also explore the essential need to understand the impact you have on the environment. I talk about the opportunity for collaboration with neighbours on larger scale environmental projects and the changing wider food industry. Finally, I flag the increasing importance of attaining an industry-recognised quality mark, as well as the advantages of spreading your risk through diversification of income streams. Technical innovation will be at the heart of the move towards food production, 
with a reduced environmental impact and increased opportunity for storage of carbon. This is an inexorable shift, but I believe COVID will actually accelerate the process. There's an abundance of capital available in the global business world at the moment, and I think in the wake of the pandemic, much of it will find its way to entrepreneurs and innovators, meaning technical advancement in this space will gather much more pace. HSBC will be supporting UK farmers through these industry changes via our specialist agricultural managers, but also in financially tangible ways with the launch of a specific agricultural fund being set aside to commercially support UK farmers as they recover from COVID and change, innovate and invest in their farms to navigate the changes which Brexit and the environmental focus will bring. More details about the amount of capital being set aside for farmers through this fund will be released over coming weeks. On that note, I would like to introduce Mike Horton from Andersons to talk about dairy in 2021 and indeed beyond. Mike, would you like to introduce yourself and then spend a little while explaining your views on the 2021 outlook for dairy and over the longer term, perhaps a 10-year outlook? Martin, good afternoon. Yes, Mike Horton. I am based in Salisbury and would specialise in the dairy sector and have been with Andersons for nearly 30 years. So uh, hopefully I've got a good good amount of background to the dairy sector. I think the dairy sector um, has a relatively upbeat future, but there will be many challenges that go with it. The, The headline everyone always talks about is milk price. And as far as I can see, there should be good milk price stability and possibly even some continued upward movement of that price, really based around a weak currency. The fact that we've got a Brexit deal and we're definitely not self-sufficient in dairy and the fact that on a world basis, the GDP is just gradually easing up by two or three percent every single month at the moment based around supply and demand. And uh, if you like, weakening supply growth and continued increase in demand. So I think as a headline, um, that side of it seems quite good. And many farmers will be relieved to know that they probably can continue to operate with milk prices of 28 to 30 pence per litre and possibly rising as we go through the year. I think the key though, is that the industry will continue to reform. Um, last year, we lost 500 producers, um, three, 4 to 5% of the industry, and we're down to probably less than 8,300 producers in England and Wales um, as we speak. And that will continue to change because, A, we're a capital-intensive industry, and B, there are lots of succession issues out there still to resolve. Those who have successors will be looking to stay in. Those who don't have successors will be looking to retire. And that will continue to uh, change the industry, if you like, to move to uh, fewer, but probably larger um, larger dairy farms. And our estimates are that it won't be too long before we're down to about 6,000 producers with probably an average herd size of between 250 and 300 cows. So yes, quite a bit of change that we're looking at um, going forward. Is there, is there any way the UK dairy sector might be able to differentiate itself from the rest of the world? I think so, Martin. I mean, we, we have already a great reputation. Um, the British brand is already quite strong. And obviously, we've got our Commonwealth connections that we can now begin to link up much more closely with. 
to develop and expand export markets. I also think we shouldn't underestimate the quality standards to which we produce milk, clearly very similar to Europe, but probably well ahead of the US and other parts of the world. And it's that high quality product, um, an added value product that we should be marketing around the world. And Brexit certainly gives us a great opportunity to do that. So you talked about quality there, and you also touched on exports. How much scope do you think there is to increase export volumes? Well, it will be a challenge, but yeah, there are obviously opportunities. If if we look at our supply base and, and the products we make in the dairy sector, liquid milk is, is never going to be an import-export opportunity except across the Irish border. We've then got powders that we do export at the moment, but they tend to be relatively low value. And then we've got products such as cheese, yogurt and butter, all which potentially have attractive export markets. And it's it's really interesting to note at the moment that in cheese terms, we're about 58% self-sufficient. And everything we export at the moment tends to be much more valuable than what we import. So exports on average are worth about £3,200 a tonne. And we import back mild, mild cheddars and, if you like, catering cheese at £2,400 a tonne. And what we really have to focus on is is the export markets offered for the higher value products. And I suspect our cheesemakers, particularly the cheddar um, and regional brand cheesemakers, will lead the way. And they'll have some big decisions to make on uh, finding the market and probably investing in more processing capacity. I I read um, the other day that we could we could actually produce another billion liters of liters worth of cheese um, to potentially target that that export market. So that there would appear to be great potential there. Well, that sounds very encouraging in terms of those high volume, high sorry, high value exports. Um, Let's turn to some of the um, quite vocal challenges that the sector faces regarding emissions and the rise of veganism. How does the sector begin to counter some of those challenges? It's always a challenging one, and it's been about for a number of years, and it's growing, if you like, in terms of the move towards veganism. There's not much dairy on its own can do, except to focus on on dairy as a role in a, a, or yeah, dairy as its place in a well-balanced diet. It's a natural product, that contains lots of calcium and other vitamins and minerals that um, no other food source that I know of can supply that in a, a, as it is in milk. And really, it, I think a lot of our diets and everything should be about a balance. A little bit of everything is where um, dairy should fit in. And it, it really has a strong message um, and positive, lots of positives about how we produce milk in this country. I think it's really important that the British industry um, stands up and promotes itself as it is and not gets mixed up with the American style approach, which tends to be the mega dairy um, and, and huge numbers of cows in a single space. As I said earlier, our average herd size is probably going to be between 250 and 300 cows. And most of those will be family owned businesses. And I think at the moment, there's still probably less than 20 dairy herds in the country that have more than a thousand cows under a single roof. And we can do lots of other things to add value. We, we do have extremely high standards of health and welfare. Um, we base a lot of our milk on grazing, 
and uh, milk from forage, milk from grass. So nearly all of our cows have freedom to graze. And we can do other, lots of other things for the environment, as, as you touched upon. And dairy farms will be looking at that. The, the emission side of it is the biggest challenge. But, you know, we're trying to create a very good food source from the digestion of forage. And that naturally creates methane. And that's hard to combat. But I'm sure that, again, now we're free of Europe, uh, the UK will take a lead in using more technology, especially around gene editing and those sorts of um, technologies that will help to try and tackle and enhance what we do as an industry. Yeah, I certainly agree that the UK industry has got a, got a, a positive story to tell, which we don't always get out there as strongly as we could. So that's something that I hope will get better in, in 2021. Um, forward planning, one of the main reasons we do it is to help farms benchmark and look at profitability. So against the backdrop of reducing area payment subsidies, what do you see as some of the biggest opportunities that dairy farms do have to increase their profitability? I, th I think we're going to learn this as we go along. I think that it, it's a, such a big change that's going to be implemented from a, a single um, payment scheme that uh, delivers a, a nice check once a year to farmers having to seek out probably five, six, seven different funding streams to help them with their businesses going forward. But I think what we're going to be looking at is, is a change in mindset, really, not only not just to focus on food production, but each farm will have a, a, an enterprise of, of food, uh, which might be the dairy, an enterprise called the environment, which we'll touch upon, I'm sure, in more detail, discuss in more detail as we go on, and probably more diversification. So if we're looking at the environment specifically, as I said, I'm sure there'll be quite a lot more innovation, particularly around gene, gene editing, to select cows with lower emissions. In addition to that, there's an awful lot that can be done with feed um, and uh, feed manipulation to keep uh, emissions low. But also what the industry must focus on is the amount of carbon we capture. That's broadly ignored by the critics of agriculture, but I don't think there's another industry in the UK and, and perhaps the world that can capture carbon to the extent that agriculture can. And perhaps one of our biggest challenges within farming is to try to monetize that and really give it the value that it's worth, because at the moment, our thinking is that it's significantly underestimated or understated in terms of the value that should be bringing back to farms. I completely agree. That net calculation has to be the one that we focus on. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Mike. I think now would be a, the the right time to introduce another of Anderson's consultants, Richard King. Uh, uh, Richard, I'd ask you to introduce yourself before perhaps flagging some of the main policy issues facing farmers this year and beyond. Thank you very much, Martin. Uh, yes, my name is Richard King. I'm the uh, head of research for Anderson's, the farm business consultants. Uh, we track policy changes, profitability, ups and downs uh, for the industry and sort of uh, uh, comment and report on that. Um, I mean, in policy terms, the big news, obviously, is that 2021 is the first year that we're not bound by the historical common agricultural policy um, support schemes. We are now free to set our own policy. 
which in fact in the UK is going to be policies because each devolved part of the UK is very much going to do its own thing. In the past, the common agricultural policy has kept us all moving in the same direction. Certainly now we're not going to bound by that framework. We're going to see Scotland, England, Wales and Northern Ireland increasingly sort of go their own way. And, you know, perhaps there'll be question marks there about, um, you know, how level the playing field is in UK terms, um, in terms of policy for um, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, actually not much is going to change for this year and perhaps the next couple of years thereafter. The um, goal really is to keep things as they are. The BPS and associated schemes are pretty much going to tick over whilst the various administrations kind of consider what comes next in terms of policy. It's really England leading the way with changes in the short term, but I think it's fairly clear to see that where England leads, the others probably will follow sooner or later. So um, it's only a delay rather than um, kind of being um, disappeared completely. Uh, in England, of course, we've got the much-touted agricultural transition, effectively basic payment, direct payment to farmers being phased out over the next seven or so years. So we've got no direct support to farmers by 2028. Um, only got the deductions for the first four years set out at the moment, but the headline point is that English farmers will lose at least half of their BPS by 2024. So that's a pretty simple sum for most farmers to do. Take the BPS that you've received in the last couple of months, halve it, that's what your income is going to look like by 2024. So obviously quite a big change uh, for a large number of businesses here in England coming up. Well, thinking about those changes in England, then I know that the full picture isn't clear yet. DEFRA are constantly putting out more bits of information uh, about these changes. And based on what we know so far, though, and what you believe, how easy will it be for English farmers to, to get back that lost BPS income from ELMS and the other schemes that we know about? Uh, yes, just good question, Martin. I mean, we don't, as you say, know a great deal about ELMS at the moment. Um, during the course of 2021, we should um, get to understand a greater amount. We've got the pilots starting. There will be applications sort of for the first round of those uh, probably sometime late spring, early summer. And obviously, if farmers are being asked to apply for something, they've got to be given more details of what they need to do and how much they're going to be paid for it. So that will start to give us much better idea of what ELMS might look like. Of course, these are only pilots, so it may change yet before the you know, main scheme is launched, mainly in 2024, but some elements in 2022 as well. I think the key point from our point of view is, however, that even if you got exactly the same amount of money coming through under ELM as you do at the moment under the basic payment scheme, the profit is not going to be the same. Effectively, we all know that the BPS is almost all profit. Yes, there's a bit of cost in greening and cross-compliance and filling the forms in, but it's pretty much all straight onto the bottom line. The key point about ELMS, it's a public's good payment. The whole point is that farmers, land managements, 
managers are going to have to do something to get that money. And the doing something is going to cost some money in their business. And therefore, the profit margins is not going to be at the same level as the BPS. So um, in terms of sort of not just thinking about overall sums coming into the business, I think it's quite important to think about the profit from these activities. Mike has just mentioned, you know, perhaps the environment, selling environmental management will be seen as a profit centre and therefore how much profit is in the activities that we're going to be doing. It's also been mentioned as well that um, the funding landscape is going to be more complicated than it has been in the past. It's not just Elms, we've got Schemes um, announce for all sorts of things, capital grants, training, advice, hill support, forestry, young farmers, animal welfare schemes. There's you know, lots going on. And to pick your way through that, to find uh, funding, to find profitable funding for your business, perhaps is uh, going to be more difficult than it has been in the past. So, yes, I mean, to sort of answer your question overall, I think it will be difficult to get back as much profit as farmers have had under the BPS up to now. Yeah, thank you. And I think, as you as you point out, there'll need to be an investment in the farm in order to access a lot of these income streams. Um, and I suspect that the total lending to uh, to farming in the UK will be uh, will go up in the short term in order to access some of those monies. And um, we could have done an entire podcast just on this subject. Um, but if if I said to you, given the time that we've got, are there any other issues that you think it's 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 absolutely worth flagging at this stage and sharing on today's podcast? Uh, yes, I mean I think the whole issue of trade needs to be mentioned. I mean it's sort of tempting to think it's all gone away with the Brexit deal, but even our relationships with uh, the EU probably hasn't been settled by that uh, necessarily. The trade and cooperation agreement that we've come to, um, it will be an ongoing thing. Um, you know as EU law changes as our regulations change. The whole issue of um, you know level playing fields will just bumble around in the background, and it almost be um, you know continuous negotiation between us and Europe on those matters. Also, you know, the deal was about, if you like, minimising the damage, which has been done. You know, we don't have tariffs. That's sort of a good thing for our cultural industry. Non-tariff barriers are perhaps a bit of an issue, but it was if you like, about maintaining the status quo. As we move through 2021, the UK government will be starting to thinking about doing new deals with new countries, the likes of perhaps Australia and New Zealand this year, US a bit further on maybe. But that sort of changes the status quo. So when that happens, we could see significant effects on our market prices, particularly if we do deals with some of these big agricultural powerhouses. So um, I think we need to kind of keep an eye on that. Uh, And I think you've already mentioned it yourself, but sort of both this year and into the longer term, the whole issue of the environment, that's going to be the big thing that bears down on agriculture, how we produce, um, you know, perhaps how we can monetize some of the advantages that um, uh, we have in terms of carbon sequestration. So that's perhaps not going to be front and centre this year, but certainly in the long term, you know, how we produce sustainably uh, will be perhaps one of the key issues for this sector as a whole. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. 
Thank, thank you very much uh, for, for that, Richard. That was very helpful, uh, an excellent summary. I'd now like to turn to, uh, to, uh, to bring in Nick Blake for a view on what the key themes are for arable farming in 2021. Uh, so, Nick, um, as with your colleagues, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners first? And then the first question I have uh, is actually regarding enterprise margins. Have, have there been any significant changes since we put together this forward planning data? Thanks, Martin. My name is Nick Blake, and I'm a director of Andersons Eastern, uh, where we're we're largely working with uh, arable and fresh produce businesses in the east of the country. In terms of changes to the forward planning since publication, probably the key one to note, I think, would be the increase in uh, wheat price, which we'd budgeted at uh, £145 a ton. And uh, currently, the AHDB futures price is quoting, after adjustment for haulage, £160 a ton, so a £15 a ton premium. Um, This year, the the winter wheat enterprise margin included a net net margin sensitivity, so hopefully readers will be able to uh, analyse the improvement in uh, net margin sensitivity um, from this uplift in price. What we've got to be mindful is of is that uh, the the establishment of the 2021 harvest has been compromised in a number of places in the country due to the uh, wet autumn, the second wet autumn in a row um, that we've that we've been suffering. Obviously, it's not too late to to drill winter wheat, um, and probably we'll find that some businesses are establishing it into uh, into February. But um, there is some upside there to uh, to report. The other thing probably just to note, I think, is that fertiliser costs are looking at free at uh, the market for fertiliser now. It's increased uh, relatively relatively high uh, compared to the August uh, purchases that most growers were doing by about £40 a tonne. So there has been some increase in input costs, but we're sort of recognising that a number of arable businesses will have already locked into their nitrogen requirements for the 2022 harvest already. Some, uh, some really useful updates there. Thank, thank you for that, Nick. Um, we've just heard from Richard about some of the changes to, that we do know about to agricultural policy. What strategies have you, do you see arable farmers employing you know, in advance of those changes? I think, Martin, one of the, one of the problems we've got um, to, to sort of work our way through is, is that actually we had a, an, an, you know, an announcement before Christmas but, but we would sort of consider it an announcement of announcements. And we know roughly what we're not going to receive by the time we get to 2024. But one of the challenges is understanding what we will have the opportunity to access. And as Richard said earlier, you know, we've largely received um, basic payment um, previously for, for doing very little. And we've got to get um, businesses and growers into into a mindset to understand that in order to receive any level of income going forward, there's going to be a relatively, you know, a reasonable uh, requirement for management, uh, which perhaps wouldn't have previously been uh, been required. Um, the other thing is, uh, is is how much money will be available, and obviously the current uh, income is is or well, the current sort of agricultural subsidy is being ring fenced to the end of Parliament, but the current. COVID crisis could have an impact on how much will be available. And so I think that's something that we're, we're trying to ask sort of clients to focus on. But, but overall, I think it's about de-risking, you know, businesses. And that's something that we're focusing on with clients. So stewardship income, what opportunities are there for stewardship income where we can 
um, try and de-risk uh, from from crop production and sort of guarantee some forms of income. For example, broad acre options such as two-year legume fallow, which is something that hasn't been looked at previously. How will that? How could that replace poorly performing uh, break crops? And uh, and how how could that add to profitability? One of the things that we've got to be mindful of where people are looking at options such as these broad acre fallow options is can they cut um, overhead costs accordingly and what alternative cropping rotations will that uh, you know will that be able to deliver um, these things are more easily achievable in scenarios where for example a business might be within a contract farming agreement rather than in-hand farming the other thing we're looking at is obviously opportunities for diversification and diversifying income but but we'd like to think that a number of these businesses a number of businesses are doing this type of planning in any event with or without these changes in agricultural policy just going back to forward planning the the the, the article or the, the the page that demonstrates the benefit or otherwise of of additional land is something that we think we we think uh, that clients should be making reference to uh, going forward that we think the profitability of some rental arrangements might be in question and obviously it's important that tenants take the opportunity to uh, engage in rent reviews going forward with the reduction in BPS. But I think we need to manage clients' expectations to understand whether or not these reductions, often they're market-based, depending on the type of tenancy, they're market-based rent reviews. I think we need to manage client expectations to understand what is achievable in terms of rent reductions. The other thing that I think is important is cash generation. I think we probably focus on this significantly in our uh, with our clients, and that is you know, to some extent, ignoring profitability and looking at cash generation uh, and in trying to, uh, you know, maximise cash generation uh, at, at as low a risk as possible. And also considering what opportunities we've got to reduce debt potentially going forward. So if there are opportunities to, um, you know, to sell a parcel of land, you know, to a, to a, an adjacent residential property, for example, is looking, just looking for opportunities to do that, to reduce debt and therefore, you know, reduce risk going forward. And I guess the other thing for, for, for businesses is to actually decide whether you want to stay in, in agriculture, you know, into the future and perhaps succession planning, this could be a good opportunity to decide whether or not one businesses wish to carry on, you know, farming or whether they might like to do something different. Thank you, Nick. Uh, Nick, I'm I'm a big believer in benchmarking and the importance of it and then use of it to improve business on the farm. But when it comes to arable farming, do you have any observations on the, the wide range of performance that we see in arable enterprises? Yeah, it's a good question, Martin. I think, um, it, and it's something that we get asked, you know, quite often. In in my experience, um, and and I'm sure you know every business is different, and and my sort of fellow consultants on this podcast will have you know I'm sure will we'll have different views. But from our perspective, I think the best the best businesses that we see are those that have a focus on agronomic out on ag- agronomic attention to detail, and that that still continues to be one of the key I believe influences in in um, you know in output and profitability. But, but as a rule, farmers require, you know, a number of entrepreneurial skills, including business management, marketing, you know, agronomic and then logistics and actually having a good, a good 
sort of blend of all of those skills, you know, is important. And again, we would see those, you know, those businesses, um, those with a good mix of those skills being uh, being successful. But we also have to be mindful of um, of, of the pro- pro- productive capacity of soils and and what they can actually achieve and what what it's possible to achieve um, from from those soils. And you know, it's recognizing um, what those soils are able to achieve, and then to some extent managing the cost base accordingly. So you know, a high yielding wheat farm, for example, can afford to. Um, you know, to invest more to some extent in terms of for growing a crop, whereas uh, a lower capacity soils, uh, we would we would suggest that potentially, um, you know, one needs to invest less, potentially less into that crop in order to uh, in order to you know manage risk. Um, the uh, the other thing I think around is around understanding rotation and break crops because. Uh, one of the challenges we've got going forward is finding replacement uh, for 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 currently what what I would describe as relatively unprofitable unprofitable break crops for a number of number of businesses, and that might be looking at you know countryside stewardship schemes as we talked about earlier, or just you know maybe fallow in the rotation uh, and you know and again trying to match cost structure accordingly. Thank you. Yeah, there's a lot to consider there, and some 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 very good ideas to think about. Uh, now, in my introduction, I, I generalised and, and I referenced the fact that I believe farming hadn't been hit as, as hard as it might have been by either Brexit or, or by COVID. But I don't want to brush over those two events. So are there any particular impacts that you've seen on arable farming from, from those two incidents? I think um, on a positive note, um, we, we and anecdotally, we would suggest that there's been some there has been some positive outcomes uh, from from the challenges of COVID, uh, for example, farm shops and farm gate sales, we've seen you know very busy uh, very busy periods uh, last year for you know increased sales from from public and at one point in one or two um, fresh produce examples, we were concerned as to how we were going to you know be able to harvest crops because of the lack of labour, and in fact you know we were able um, probably. Uh, Unexpectedly, to be able to find local resource to harvest some of these, uh, some of the seasonal vegetable, and actually local um, lo- local customers were found. So, so uh, vegetables that would ordinarily have gone into the uh, into the um, into the markets and then into restaurants and so on, we found that we've been able to uh, to sell locally and actually been able to cut out some of the costs associated with with moving produce into the markets. So we've been able to sell loose asparagus, for example, uh, avoiding having to cost in uh, a label and a, an elastic band, for example. So it sounds minimal. It sounds like a, a minor saving, but actually, over you know a crop of you know several acres of asparagus, actually there's some you know there are some financial savings there. So that's been quite interesting. Um, I think it's probably helped improve the perception of farming to to the public. I would suggest. So I think that's a positive. And um, and probably some of the challenges we've we've found, I think, have been in uh, potato production, where you know, we've had crops delayed uh, fr- from uh, from being moved into factory for processing. Uh, that's been that's been a challenge at times. And so, you know, there's there's more potatoes in in stock, and that's been important to try and manage that relationship with the customer, just to uh, 
you know, just to, um, you know, to, to sort of keep expectations uh, managed. Uh, the other thing I would say is it, I think we were lucky that, um, well, lucky in inverted commas that uh, COVID happened when it did, because actually it meant that there are a number of uh, potatoes that weren't planted, I think, this year that potentially would have been had this happened perhaps six weeks later, which I think that's probably been, you know, beneficial to the uh, to the market. Um, I mean, in terms of Brexit and trade, I mean, I would say I think on on farm practically we've seen very little impact really, other than some sort of minor logistics issues uh, around moving grain. Uh, overall, we've probably seen uh, seen you know minimal uh, minimal disruption. And again, in one or two fresh produce businesses, imports you know has been have been a challenge. So probably nothing other than what we've seen in 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 the press, but largely around logistics. Thanks, Nick. I've I've certainly seen some examples of farm shops that have done incredibly well during these lockdown periods, uh, supplying the local communities. Uh, but I think diversification has been a bit of a double-edged sword, and and some um, of the diversification we saw into into wedding venues and events venues have obviously been particularly badly hit during COVID and, and quite often when we have seen problems, that's where they've uh, materialised. Well, well, thank you, Nick, for that insight. Last but not least, I'm going to ask David Siddle to walk us through his views on beef and sheep in 2021. So from Andersons in Scotland, David, do you, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, and perhaps when you have, we could start with prices. Are the, are the current strong prices sustainable? Are they here to stay? Thank, thank you very much, Martin. Uh, my name is David Siddle, um, Director of Anderson's Northern, based up here in Edinburgh. We operate throughout Scotland and the north of England, and I have a particular uh, specialism or interest in, uh, you know, in beef cattle and sheep. Um, Martin's asked us to comment on the, uh, you know, the current very strong prices we're here, we're, we're seeing for cattle and sheep. You know, are they here to stay? You know, I guess as consultants, we're a, uh, a fairly cautious breed. And, you know, I think we are currently uh, enjoying a, a particular set of circumstances which, you know, have brought this about. And I would certainly caution in the producers banking on these prices being here to stay. We've taken a, a cautious approach, um, you know, with regard to the information we've put into the, uh, the costings book uh, for the year ahead. We've looked at five-year averages and we've tended to budget along those lines. And I would certainly encourage, um, you know, beef and sheep producers in looking at and using that data um, to think along the, the lines of five-year averages rather than getting carried away with where we are at the present time. Uh, just a comment on sheep. Sheep prices, you know, week on week are running about 20% ahead of last year. But in terms of a set of circumstances, you know, we've got a, a 2020 kill of the 2020 crop quite a long way ahead of where it was at this point last year. We've got New Zealand imports down. We've got exports down, um, which is a concern to me going forward. Um, we have retail demand up. We've got U numbers low, and we've got a relatively weak pound. Now, there's a whole combination of circumstances there that could go either way in the year ahead. You know, I think a particular concern I have is with around 35% of our lambs heading over the water into Europe and the majority going into France. Our exports to France are running a long way behind where they were last year. 
And we really will need that market to reappear for us next year when the big numbers come on come onto the market in September, October, November. You know, because without those exports, I feel that um, you know prices could be a lot weaker. Cattle deadweight price, you know, again, you know, we've budgeted um, in our costings book 360 pence a kilo deadweight um, for a premium animal from a premium producer. Now, that producer at the present time could well be getting nearer 385, 390 pence. Traditionally, when our prices have been very strong, we have drawn in a lot of imports, particularly from Ireland. And I think logistics and difficulties with Irish plants and staff and some logistics over Brexit have maybe held back these imports. But if our prices remain at their current levels, I would not be surprised if we saw you know, more Irish imports being drawn in. So I think it's, it's really just a, a word of caution. Um, you know, if we're looking ahead and planning, think about those five-year averages. Uh, please don't get complacent and think these very strong prices that we're enjoying just now, um, you know, are here to stay. Okay, so higher prices with a note of caution. Um, but now turning to costs, uh, how will the higher bedding and feed costs hit margins in the sector? Well, I think Martin, the you know we've we've seen sort of almost unprecedented you know rises in the cost of protein and also in the cost of of, of feed grains. You know, as Nick referred to, you know, when uh, looking at these wheat costings, there, you know, those prices were, you know, I don't think anybody could have quite forecast where they might have got to. But just trying to put that into a bit of context, if we look at a sort of rearer finisher um, suckler herd. You know, to take those animals through to slaughter, you're looking at about a sort of ton and a half of, uh, of of concentrate or hard feeding. Now, a 30 to 40 pound a ton price rise, you know, it's putting about a 50 to 60 pounds a head um, cost on finishing those animals. If we look at dairy beef, um, you know, those animals could be eating between two and maybe two and a half tons of hard feeding. So you're probably nearer. A hundred pounds a head increase um, in the costs of producing a finished animal. I think those costs are often um, lost in the mist in many businesses. Um, you know, if you look at statistical data, you know, perhaps approaching fifty percent of feed that's going into a lot of um, you know beef finishing systems is homegrown grain. And you know, have we really taken account? of the value of that feeding that we're putting down those animals. You know, are we adopting the right strategies? You know, if store prices are particularly strong and my feed grain's worth, you know, my feed barley's worth 160 pounds a ton, am I better to cash the barley and sell the stores? You know, there are all of these types of things to think about. You know, feed and bedding costs have got a much lesser um, effect on the, uh, on the sheep sector because we use far less of them. But just to put a marker down, you know, a typical lowland ewe might consume 50 to 60 kilos of, of concentrate feeding. If we put a 40 pound a ton price rise on that, it's about £2.50 a ewe. So, you know, relevant, but less relevant than, than perhaps for the, uh, you know, for the beef sector. Yeah, quite. Thank you. Now, David, uh, this sector is the one perhaps most reliant historically on basic payments to support profits. Uh, the devolved administrations have different timescales and approaches, but in England, where we're seeing a swifter transition to elms, what do you believe beef and sheep farmers should be looking at 
in order to ease that transition. With that one, Martin, if, if I could perhaps be a, a little bit uh, cheeky towards some of our uh, beef and sheep producers, you know, I do work across the sectors. And when I look at the, uh, you know, the grasp that, um, you know, particularly specialist dairy business or specialist arable businesses have on their costs of production, their budgeting, their benchmarking and their knowledge of, uh, you know, their, their cost base. I do feel that our beef and sheep producers lag behind there. And, you know, I think my uh, my overriding um, piece of advice, you know, would be to try to, uh, you know, get a grip on, you know, the costs within your business, um, you know, to understand what it's costing you to produce these animals and to try to move forward and make decisions, you know, from, you know, a position of knowledge. You know, it's been interesting for us. We have a uh, Currently, we have a, a Kiwi uh, consultant working for us, um, you know, for two or three years, and he's been involved with one or two beef and sheep businesses, and you know, constantly raises an eye that they, you know, they don't really know, you know, their costs of production or what they're doing. Um, you know, he keeps making the point quite clearly that, um, you know, they would not be in business in New Zealand, you know, if that were the case, and we are entering into a situation now where you know our sector has been you know the most reliant on these basic payments they are going to phase out they are going to be replaced by elms and as richard said there will be a cost element to um, obtaining these monies so i think very very important you know my, my my overriding piece of advice will be to try to get to grips with um you know your cost base understanding your business some benchmarking you know, maybe engaging with some, you know, relevant and forward-thinking peer groups and use that as a basis of trying to plan your business going forward. Because I do see a lot of businesses that, you know, no change is just not going to be um, an option. Yeah, that, that's a difficult message to, for some of our farmers to hear, but I think it's an important one for them to consider. Uh, you, you mentioned a few minutes ago um, about dairy beef. And uh, it, it made me, uh, it reminded me that we're seeing the increased use of sexed semen and, and beef inseminations to dairy herds. Uh, as the volumes of that are increasing, do, do, is that something that you see evolving further in the future? Well, I, I certainly hope so, Martin. I think there are, you know, as you've mentioned, you know, yourself there, I mean, you know, due to the, uh, you know, really the, the advances made in sexed semen, you know, we've seen the number of, um, you know, beef inseminations rising from, you know, maybe 25% five, six, seven years ago to approaching 50% now. Um, you know, I think there's, there's some concern among, amongst suckler producers that are we going to be, uh, you know, faced with a, a flood of dairy cross beef. But if we look at that national herd uh, of, of both dairy and beef cattle, it, it, it is on a downward tra trajectory. And I'm not convinced that that will be the case. Um, but I think with, with dairy beef, you know, traditionally these, these beef cross carbs have drifted off into a sort of myriad of different systems, um, you know, often many of them fairly inefficient. And I think any of us who've maybe visited some, some of the big finishers will often find a whole myriad of uh, different sizes and shapes of dairy stores that they've collected up from all over the countryside. Um, and it's just not a very terribly efficient way of utilizing these animals. So I think there's great potential for more joined up thinking there. 
Um, we are seeing some initiatives starting to appear, you know, with some of the larger retailers, you know, who are looking to link up, you know, their dairy, um, their dairy producers with beef producers and to have a, you know, a fully traceable um, production system with those animals taken through from A to B as efficiently as possible. Um, you know, it does quite a lot in terms of giving them absolute traceability, ease of measuring um, carbon possibly. Um, maybe it's doing something for the uh, the welfare of those dairy bull calves. So, yes, I, I hope that there are going to be some more joined-up approaches there. I think there's a sort of misconception that, um, you know, this dairy beef is going to be cheap beef. But I, I think if you do follow these things through, even on an efficient cost of production model, um, you know, retailers are going to have to pay, you know, a premium price for that product if they are going to let these producers, you know, genuinely make a margin from them. So, you know, I think the other thing I'll be interested to see, Martin, as well, is, you know, whether any systems develop that dovetail with um, elms and grassland options in elms but maybe dovetail with, um, you know, different forms of, uh, of, of mixed farming on arable farms, perhaps again supported by alms payments, or maybe some of our regenerative um, agricultural um, types will, you know, look to develop a, a more integrated, you know, grass-based system for some of these dairy bread bull calves. So, you know, I think there's, um, there will be some opportunities there for people. And, you know, again, you know, we do need to wait and see perhaps what comes of Elms and whether we can dovetail with that, um, you know, to get us to the right place. I think as we hear more about Elms, it will, without doubt, begin to shape some of the solutions in the ways that you've just described. Uh, thank you, David. Some some really interesting thoughts there and some very useful information. And, and if we had more time, uh, we could spend a little longer discussing it. But I'm afraid I'm going to have to begin to wrap things up now. I hope that the insights that uh, we've given you today have helped to bring our forward planner 2021 to life a little. HSBC has been steadily increasing our agricultural lending book and our customer base of farmers. And with the 2021 Agricultural Fund, I can confirm that we will have the balance sheet to continue to help clients invest in their farms. So please do call your local agricultural manager if the plans you're formulating require any kind of help and support from the bank. I'd like to thank our friends from Andersons for the time and their uh, insight and input. So thank you, Richard, Nick, Mike and David. And that's it for this first podcast. Uh, watch out for our next one, which will be focusing on how farming will change due to the environmental considerations we're facing. Uh, meantime, keep safe. And I hope 2021 is an enjoyable and successful year for everyone. Thank you for joining us for HSBC Talks Business. To learn more about anything you heard today, please visit business.hsbc.com.